So, how's everyone doing this morning? Are you guys are you guys more talkative? Yeah. Are you guys more talkative than usual? Oh yeah, be hospitable. You guys are putting that into practice. Without complaint. So you telling me I shouldn't? Is that what you're So you guys got the uh, note sheet back there, good. Note sheet, yeah. I try to put them back there on that that corner of that uh, counter every week. Yeah, it was nice paper that one week, huh? Yeah, in the evangelism class, they were printing out something ahead of me, and uh, they used the good paper in that class, so I just hit print, and it came out in whatever they were using, so those guys are wasteful. Oh, I'm kidding. I, take, I was joking. Now I'm, now I'm tempting you guys to... <laughs> no, I would never uh, say that to their face. Yes, it can, but it's easily distorted, and that's always going to be what I say. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2 we're looking at this morning, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. We got some people out of town. Some, I think, went on that history tour, right? So uh, looks a little different. Feels kind of weird, most people out here. Feels like I'm just speaking to you guys. Thank you. Yeah, this this is for you guys. You guys have a lot to work on, <laughs> apparently. Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> At least you're honest. At least you are. All right, so let's look at our text. First Peter chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. Just two verses this morning, and uh, it's kind of a hinge point in the book. Uh, I love this text. Uh, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, thank you that we get to gather as your people this morning and Look at your word. Thank you for your love for us. You address us in this text as, as your beloved. Uh, we thank you that you, have, that you have rescued us, that you have redeemed us, that you have made us your own possession, that you have uh, caused us to be born again, that you have brought us into your family, and that you love us in Christ, even as your own children. And so we... We receive your word this morning with eagerness and with joy, uh, with thankfulness. We're thankful also for uh, the last hour where we're reminded of your blessings upon us as a local church, as a household, uh, as your household. Um, all these ministries happening. Uh, we're thankful for the shepherds, for the elders that you've blessed us with. Um, their devotion to your word, their determination to do everything according to your word, and um, I thank you for their humility, for their love for one another, their humility towards one another as they work together as a team, for their prayerfulness, for their carefulness. Thank you for their 
communication with the church family. Um, and uh, Lord, we see a long list of ministries and things going on, and there's just evidence of your blessing upon us. We are so richly blessed to have your word, to have faithful teachers, to have um, so many servants. Uh, there's so much hospitality. Uh, people are busy serving one another, and um, so we're just thankful. And we ask that you would that you would strengthen us to be faithful, to be uh, a faithful church, uh, a church that's pure and holy, uh, a church that is um, that lo- that loves one another, uh, a church that uh, reaches out uh, with the gospel, faithfully proclaiming the gospel, uh, and strengthen us to do all these things for the sake of your name, uh, and in response to the undeserved favor that we receive, that we enjoy from you. Uh, now. Uh, Bless us now to receive your word. May your grace uh, and peace be multiplied to us through your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, And in the NAS, beginning in verse 12, how does that read? What are the first few words? Keep your behavior excellent. Keep your behavior excellent. Okay. So... uh, Verse 12 in the legacy standard is by keeping your conduct. So they changed the keep, a command to keep, into uh, uh, the continuation of a sentence, right? Uh, So the main idea there is abstain from passions, keeping your conduct. That's a better way to translate it is keeping your conduct. The LSB has, yeah, by keeping your conduct. Excellent. And uh, those kinds of things, man, those are just so helpful for taking apart a passage and understanding really how, how it's structured. And that, that structure is important because it's all uh, uh, chosen carefully by the Holy Spirit, right? And it's not a, it's not a second command. Uh, he's elaborating on the first one to abstain, but we'll get into all that. I was just thinking about it as I read it, wondering if any of you are reading keeping there. You guys are using the... LSB, so you're seeing that difference. All right. Uh, you guys, uh, I think we all remember that morning of September 11th, uh, 2001, the terrorist uh, attack, Al-Qaeda launched an attack on our country uh, that ultimately took the lives of more than 3,000 people. And if you, went, if you go back and read those transcripts from President Bush, and you may remember those speeches, uh, Shortly after 9-11, you'd find in those speeches, one of his key themes was to emphasize to the American people uh, again and again that our country is at war. He kept using that terminology, we are at war. He knew that if we lost sight of the fact that we were at war, that we would be tempted to take the terrorist threat lightly. And he wanted all the people to be unified and to know, to think about it that way. We'd be less likely, he thought, if we didn't think of it as war, less likely to put forth the kind of effort needed to win the war against terror. That's why he did it. History has proven him right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Peter, in our text, employs a similar strategy. He announces to his readers, we're being attacked. We're at war. He calls it war because that's exactly what it is. If we don't think of it as war, we'll be tempted to take the threat lightly and then less, less likely to put, the, put forth the kind of effort that's needed to win the war. It's really a call to battle. 
I don't know if you felt that. You almost sense it when you get started. Beloved, I urge you, right? There's a seriousness, there's a solemnness. The passage is 2,000 years old, yet it describes a war that still continues today. And it's a passage that provides strategies that are absolutely essential for you and me as we fight this spiritual war. Uh, as Christians, we know we've been forgiven. I, 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 look, I think about myself. I, I know that I'm a, a new man, the old me that was controlled by sin. Uh, the old man has been put to death. Uh, he has no power, no claim over me. I'm a new man. Uh, I've been uh, welcomed into God's family. I'm justified. Sin doesn't, is not my master. I'm a new creation. Uh, we say this about ourselves, right? We've been transformed. But all those things don't mean that there isn't still a war going on. And I think sometimes it's easy for us as Christians to rehearse those wonderful gospel truths and then to kind of sit back. And we, we bask in those blessings, and we ought to. That's actually the way in which we wage war. But we do that, and we forget that we are in a war sometimes. And the pressure is off. Um, and we, we, we might think, well, it's good to fight against sin, but not absolutely necessary. When I do fight against sin, I don't, I don't have to fight that earnestly because I already know I'm forgiven and heaven's my home. And I believe Peter anticipates that his original readers, but all of his, God's people throughout history would at times have that kind of cavalier attitude. And so he writes with soberness, uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That term, beloved, I love it. Uh, some translations have dear friends, and that's uh, quite disappointing. <laughs> that is not at all a good translation. Uh, Peter's expressing affection for his readers, but he's also reminding us of the affection that God has for us, for them. Uh, we're family. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 2, he says that you're elect, you are, you've been selected out, uh, and that's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, where He determined, in ages past, determined to love you. That's what it's talking about. He's loved you for centuries, for millennia. He's loved you. Um, he's caused you, verse 3, to be uh, born again. Uh, he, gave, he gave you new life, right? He gave you inheritance, right? Verse 4, uh, you've been given an inheritance which is kept in heaven for you. In chapter 1, verse 14, it refers to to them as obedient children. Verse 17, he says, you call on him as father. So he's reminding them of their incredible position uh, that they are in as God's children, so loved by him. Um, I was reading a Facebook post from my sister this morning. Uh, she, she goes to um, Crossway Bible. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, they were at Grace, and they were sent out to plant with the group to plant Crossway Bible. And uh, some of you know them. I know you've been here a little bit longer. And uh, they had uh, they adopted embryos, and so they gave she gave birth to triplets. So they have triplets, and they just turned twelve. I think it was yesterday. And so she was putting up a post on, and, and she was talking about how she remembered back when. Uh, 
you know, she had the, uh, what's the little picture they take of the baby? Ultrasound. I did know it. I'm familiar with those things. <laughs> I've looked at a few of them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she, was, she was looking at those. She remembers looking at those, and she was, she was late. You know, she was, she, was, she was big. She was getting ready to have birth, and she wanted, it. She wanted to hurry up and give birth to them, right? Um, but she, she just remembers thinking, I want them out, but yet I want them in to be healthy. And she was just talking about, she says, before I uh, saw them, I knew them, and I loved them. And I was, of course, I'm thinking about the, the first Peter, you know, as I read that. And the analogy does break down, right? But just to think about the, uh, the kind of affection that my sister has for her children, and we all know that, just the mother's affection for her children. Our, our Heavenly Father had that kind of affection for you, and he's had that for so long. And Peter's thinking about that when he gives him this warning about the affection that their Heavenly Father has for them. Um, he wants them to think about that undeserved favor, like he talked about in chapter 1 and verse 13, that grace that is coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that undeserved favor that, is, that they're going to see uh, magnificently revealed to them, that undeserved favor. And, but right now, it's even coming to them right now. The verb choice in chapter 1, verse 13, is that it's already coming to them. And then he says, I urge you. He's, in, he's coming alongside them, encouraging them, challenging them, exhorting them, pleading with them to take action. Um, ones so beloved by the Father, please, please hear this. Please, listen up. Receive this. It's as though Peter is, is calling together his family. Uh, at times, I've done this with my family. I call them into the living room, tell them to sit down and tell them important stuff and encourage them. Sorry, I had <laughs> some mental images there. I was not expecting that. But it is the feel, I think, when I read this text and think about Peter calling them. He knows the situation they're in. He knows the pressure they're under. He knows how they are beloved. And he's talking to them as family and his brothers and sisters. I love you. I want you to be safe. I want you to be well. But we're being attacked. We're at war. Like it or not, you've got to pick up your sword and fight. You may not feel like you want to. Maybe you don't feel fully equipped to, but you have to because we're at war. And so in his, in his pleading with those he loves, he gives us three strategies for a spiritual battle. Um, that's, the, that's the point of the text. Three strategies for your spiritual battle. First, he says... Just a comment on that. Yeah. Isn't it natural, in the flesh at least, to try to deny that we are at war? <clears throat> to say, I don't want to go there, so therefore I'm not going to accept it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And yet that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, that's what he's bringing to our mind, is we are at war. You can't deny it. Right. You can't ignore it. So now, how do you, how do you go into battle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so first he says, fight against yourself all the time with all your strength. Fight against yourself all the time with all your strength. Amen. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So look at verse 11 again. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he's saying, you and I are at war. Pick up your sword and fight. You say, okay, where's my enemy? I'll rip him to shreds. He says, I like your attitude, soldier. You are the enemy. Sounds like Pogo. Sounds like what? Pogo is a comic strip that used to be popular years ago. Uh, I have found the enemy, and the enemy is me. Yeah, I remember that line, but I don't know thing about the comic strip. Yeah. Sorry, I'm working on it. I may have some white hairs. We don't really know. No, no, probably not. So you need to fight against your own passions, Peter says, your own sinful desires. Uh, this is that familiar word used all throughout the New Testament, epithemia, for usually translated as lust or lusts. Uh, it's a very strong desire. Usually it's used in a negative sense, as in an inordinate desire. It's the, the, pur- the language the Puritans would use, an inordinate desire, where uh, it's, not your, it's not a righteous desire. It can be used that way. We lust after the Lord, a very strong desire. We ought to, right? We were saved to lust after Him. But normally it's an inordinate desire. That means that we're either willing to sin in order to get what we want, or if we don't get what we want, then we'll sin in response. And then it's uh, lust. Then it's an inordinate. It's out of order. Shouldn't, it ought not be that way, that our, we have desires like that, that function that way. And that's what he's talking about here. So this is, this is what you're fighting against. Your greatest enemy is not Satan. Much Christian literature would lead you to believe otherwise. And I believe Satan really rejoices in this, that he gets our eyes off of the primary enemy and even unto him. Uh, Many Christians ignore their sinful desires and spend all their time trying to pray away territorial demons and ancestral demons, and they give little attention to their own desires. Uh, Your greatest enemy is not the world. It is an enemy, right? The Apostle John says, don't love the world, right? The world is passing away, and all the things in it is passing away. Don't love the world. So the world is your enemy, but the greatest threat is your own self. Don't spend all your time critiquing the world's system, fighting all the things that the world says. Fight against your own sinful desires. Your greatest enemy is not your circumstances. I don't think there's any Christian who would say that their circumstances are their greatest enemy, but I do think that oftentimes we live like our circumstances are the greatest threat in our lives. Uh, If the truth be told, they'd Many Christians devote most of the energy, their energy and attention to overcoming and beating their own difficult circumstances. That's what they focus on. Um, Peter's saying the biggest threat is not your lack of finances. It's not the unkindness shown to you by others in your family or others in your community, right? They're being persecuted. No, no, that's, that's not the biggest threat. Other people, what's coming at you, the pain that's, that's, that they're causing. Um, It's not the unreasonable pressure put on you by your boss. Peter's saying, no, you, you are your worst enemy. Um, Your problem and my problem is that you and I have sinful desires that seek to destroy 
our souls. Uh, you desire to be first. You desire pleasure and comfort and recognition, affirmation, approval, praise, independence. So here's the question. Have you been living like you are in a spiritual battle? Think about this past week. Have you been living like you're in a spiritual battle? Uh, where have you been putting your energy this week? Have you been fighting against your desires? What, what is your greatest threat? As you think about this past week, what, what has your energy and your focus, your pursuit shown to be? How has it revealed uh, your greatest threat, how you view your greatest threat? Is it other people? Is it other things? Certain conditions you want to be freed from? Or have you been watching out for sinful desires? Identifying those sinful desires and taking steps to overcome them, to defeat them. So he says you've got to fight against yourself. You do this, he says, by abstaining from your lusts. Abstaining. So you have to hold yourself back from your lusts. That's self-discipline. Passions of the flesh is the way it's worded in the ESV. Uh, passions, like I said, is the word lust, strong desires. Uh, what does Peter mean by the flesh? He uses flesh. That's the Greek word sarks. He uses it to represent the weakness of human beings in this age. He uses it, uh, we, as we've seen, we'll see it a couple more times, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, but we've already seen it in chapter 1, verse 24, not too much before. He uses it here, uh, where he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. So there, he's expounding on the nature of flesh as he thinks about it, as he's thinking about it right now, right? Flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Say, well, in what way is it like grass? He says, the grass withers, the flower falls. So the desires of the flesh are the natural desires that human beings have apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And Peter's saying, don't follow them. Don't live according to your feelings. Don't live according to your desires. That's how we all naturally live before we were saved. We always just said, what do I feel like doing? We didn't have to even ask it, right? Just intuitive. Of course, that's what we're going to do. Ephesians 2, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were dead, and that was our death, uh, our experience of that death, was always in the realm of trespasses and sins. But he wants to describe that realm in which we lived. We lived while we were dead. He wants to describe that, that realm further. He says, among whom, or in whom, we are, in those trespasses and sins, we, we lived in the passions of our flesh. So what's it mean to live in the realm of trespasses and sins? It means to live in the realm of our passions and our flesh. So we never stepped outside of our passions. That was the guiding rule for us. What do we feel like doing? It's those strong desires that we have. We just, all, everything we did was in keeping with that. Carrying out the desires of the body or the mind. Um, and Peter's saying here, you still have the flesh. You still have those desires. And, but now you don't live uh, under their mastery. And so you must deny them. 
Paul later says in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, he speaks of those desires. Well, he says, uh, you've been taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is, the ESV says, corrupt through deceitful desires. Again, it's it's an idea of ongoing. It's uh, it's being corrupted. You're, you're, you're taught to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is being corrupted through deceitful desires. So he refers to those desires as as deceitful. Uh, and that's the way our strong desires come to us, making promises to us. Um, if you can just get that thing, then you will be satisfied. You'll be happy. Then you'll have joy. Then you can rest. You just got to get that. That's all you got to get. Uh, that's all it'll take. If you can just get that person to understand what you really meant, why don't you listen? If you just understand, then it'll all be fine. Um, if you can just get that raise, if you can just get the respect of that person, then you can be happy. And you need it. Right? You can fill in the blank. If I can just get X. Your desires are always holding out promises, false promises. Fleshly lusts tell you there is something greater than Jesus. I mean, you have him already, but obviously that's not enough to be satisfied. So if you can just get that person to understand, then that's even greater than Jesus. Then you'll be happy. That'll be the thing that brings the joy and satisfaction. That's what our fleshly lusts tell us all the time. Their fleshly lusts are telling us there's something greater than the excellencies, like we talked about. You were saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your your lusts are telling you, your desires are telling you there's something greater than those excellencies, those perfections. Remember, the perfections of God that are evidenced in his redemption of you. He's displayed those things for your your pleasure, that is, you take in his beauty. We love to look at things of beauty. We We just get to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you look down in there, and someone says, all right, we saw it, let's go. You're like, well, hold on a second. I want to look at this. You say, why? It's a big hole in the ground. Yeah, it's a big hole. Yeah, I don't really know why I want to look at it, but it's beautiful. And come to find out, I have pleasure. I find pleasure in looking at the beautiful scene. It's amazing. And that's what we do all the time. And you go home, you, you go back to the hotel, the next day, you're like, let's go back down there again. I want to look at that again. That's beautiful. It's God's awesome creation. Right. And it's but a little dim reflection of His glory. And one day His glory will be revealed to us, into us, right? And we'll see His glory. And that we'll ne- we've never experienced pleasure like it'll be in that day. When we see His beauty. And, uh, and we've seen that beauty. We've seen something, his beauty, revealed in a much greater way than seeing the Grand Canyon, right? We see it in that, in that word foreknowledge. We see it in that word redemption. We see it in the word justification. And it's beautiful. And that's why we turn those things over in our minds. And we love it. We find pleasure. Um, but our promises, our, our lusts, I mean, hold out false promises, 
and they keep saying, there's something better. Those things aren't enough. Focus on this. As you follow those lusts and feed those desires, then the marvelous light, right? He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then that marvelous light into which he's called you isn't so marvelous anymore as you feed those desires. It's not so marvelous, and the light doesn't seem so bright. Our view of Christ and his glory is darkened. It's clouded. Our vision of him is clouded. We go to read the word, right? And we come, like he says in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all these things, malice, right? All these selfish things. That's the fruit of our desires. Put away those things. Crave the pure milk of the word. And we go, I'm reading the Bible. It's just not coming alive to me. Well, it's because we're feeding the flesh, feeding those desires. And it's crowding our, it's clouding our vision, crowding out the things of the Lord. And so at some point, following those desires, there's very little marveling going on. That light doesn't even seem marvelous anymore. Those, your own desires are waging war against your soul. Peter tells us to fight against yourself all the time. Why all the time? Your lusts are waging war against you all the time. So he uses the present tense verb here to be abstaining, to continually abstain, right? Because the normal, normal tense would be to use aorist tense, which is not describing, uh, it's not describing the action any further, but present tense emphasizes continuing action. You're to be abstaining. Don't let your guard down. You can't, you can't afford to do that. It's like pedaling a bicycle uphill without any brakes. As soon as you stop pedaling, you start falling back down. Peter's saying, be abstaining from the fleshly lust. They don't stop. It's like being at a boxing match without any break between rounds. If you stop punching, then your opponent will win. So fight against yourself all the time with all your strength. The words Peter chose to describe this fight shows us that we need to fight with all our strength. Your lusts are waging war. Right? It doesn't call for half-hearted effort. Uh, no, I mean, we have one, but uh, the soul is just uh, the real you, the important you. The body can be Could destroyed. Could this be for an unbeliever, correct? What's that? This, could this be for an unbeliever? Well, he's addressing them as beloved. Right. So he's talking to ones who, yeah, have really been called out of darkness. Um, yeah, so the, by, calling, by referring to their souls, even rather than you, rather than saying you abstain from your lusts, which wage war against you, right? he could have said it that way, but he uses the word soul. Why? Why soul instead of you? Well, uh, because the soul then uh, clarifies that your body doesn't matter as much. Somewhat inconsequential. Not totally inconsequential. Spirit, but yeah, he could have said spirit. Yeah. The soul lives forever, right? Our flesh doesn't. The soul doesn't. Right. So, um, okay. yeah, good. <laughs> so he's calling us to put forth maximum effort. Be ruthless because your enemy is. Verse 12, 
you know, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So Peter knows the behavior is important, but you can see where the priority is, right? Abstain from fleshly desires. Give attention to your desires. Your behavior will flow from those desires. So watch your behavior, but keep looking at your desires and at your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So fight at the level of your desires and at the level, and at the level of your behavior, but prioritize those <coughs> desires. Don't be a Pharisee, essentially is what he's saying. Don't cleanse only the outside of the cup. Pay attention to what's on the inside. Remember Jesus' words, Matthew 23, 25 through 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Just following the desires, right? Indulging self. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Our behavior flows out of our desires and out of our choices to fulfill those desires. The hint for how we fight against those desires is found in that word, beloved. When your flesh says, I need money, or I need approval, or I need whatever, you say, shut up, flesh. I don't need anything else to be satisfied, to be joyful, to be blessed. And you could say, I guess, like 1 Corinthians 7, I can remain as I am. I can do that because I'm loved by God. That's why I don't need anything else, because I'm loved by God. I'm His beloved. He foreknew me, right? This is how we fight against sinful desires, with gospel truth. He foreknew me. He chose me. He caused me to be born. He redeemed me with the precious blood of His Son. He made me His possession. He has an inheritance for me. I have tasted the Lord's kindness. I have tasted. And He nourishes me with more and more tastes of Him in the Scriptures. And He is holy. And He has called me to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So those passions are characterized by ignorance. And so we fight with, uh, with the truth of, with, with gospel truth, the truth of the Scripture. And that's how we deny ourselves those pleasures and don't follow them. With, we use the truth. So three strategies for your spiritual battle. One was fight against yourself all the time with all your strength. Second, fight as an unwelcome, intruding visitor in this world. Fight as an unwelcome, intruding visitor in this world. On his way to saying, abstain from the passions of your flesh... He tells them, he reminds them of how to think about themselves. 
He calls them sojourners and exiles. Or I think, uh, I don't know what the other ones have. Aliens, maybe. Sometimes they, they translate exiles as sojourners. Aliens and strangers. Sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. That's the LSB? Mm-hmm. All right, that's the same as the ESV then. Sojourners and exiles. So it reminds them to remember their identity. Both words combined speak of an individual who is a temporary resident living in a place that is not his true home. He is visiting for a short time. His citizenship is elsewhere. His allegiance is elsewhere. So citizenship and allegiance and his home are all elsewhere. We're sojourners. We don't belong here. Our true citizenship is in heaven. That's where our allegiance and loyalty lie. We've heard that phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Peter says, no, no, don't do that because you're not from here. You're not made for this place. So even though you're in Rome, don't do as the Romans do. Not that they were actually in Rome, but everyone in the world follows their desires. That's what's going to happen all around you. A people, when they talk about what they're going to do and why they're going to do it, they are trying to, 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 to teach you how to live. And so Peter's saying, no, you've got to abstain. You're going, to go, you're going to be doing something contrary to everyone around you. I mean, all their advertising is going to appeal to your desires. Everything that they do, everything that they say is going to teach you otherwise. So you remember, you don't belong here. You're from elsewhere. They don't understand the battle over their soul. And yet this is the great battle of the universe. It's a battle over the souls of men. Yet amazingly, no one in the world says a thing about it. Newspapers don't mention it. They don't talk at all about the battle for your soul. There's no public service announcement on the radio. There aren't any classes on it at the universities. No government agency that's uh, constructed to address this. There's no welfare pamphlet that gives even a hint of how we are to fight for our souls. And so you're not going to get any help anywhere. It's hard to speak about or write about something of which you are ignorant. Right. They're living in the darkness. Right. The biggest issue that our souls face is a non-issue in the world. They teach us how to fight everything else. Mosquitoes, sunstroke, pollen, fire, theft, high cholesterol, bad credit, dandelions. Global warming. Global warming. But they don't teach you how to fight for your soul. Our world is passionately committed to the relatively inconsequential. And so Peter's saying, don't go with the flow. You don't belong here. In light of who you are, don't live according to the fleshly desires. You're sojourners and exiles. How did you become this? How did you come to be sojourner and exile? He had just told us that in verses 9 and 10. You're a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, Right? You're chosen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because of all this, you're a sojourner, exile. You belong to another world. 
Your eyes have been opened to this. You know about your citizenship in heaven. And so, remember that your home is in heaven. How important this is for battling our sinful desires. And yet it's a challenge, isn't it? What is heaven like? Oh my goodness. It's hard to even talk that long about it because it's how can we conceive of it? Um, I love teaching through Romans 8 because he talks about that future glory and I like to stretch it out into a bunch of sermons. So we spent a long time thinking about it. That's right. Contemplating, oh, 1 Corinthians 15, long section about our resurrected bodies. Oh, my goodness. It's awesome. Um, I've always thought one of the best ways to battle uh, various lusts is to read Randy Elkhorn's book on heaven. It's nice that it's a big, thick volume. He's looking all throughout Scripture to describe heaven. You go, oh, my goodness. Now I've got something to live for. I belong there. That's my future. And then everything else seems frivolous. And we start to loosen our grip. So I commend to you that book. MacArthur's got a good one in heaven. What is it called? Heaven. <laughs> 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 There's a subtitle, but... Uh, He's lost. It's hard to remember. Randy Elkhorn? <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I get, I'm somewhat jealous of him uh, with the holy jealousy. Uh, <laughs> and he spent a long time, a, long, a large portion of his life, analyzing the scriptures, thinking about heaven. It's one thing to read the book, but to go through all the work of writing it. And, and, it, and he also writes a lot on money, how to use your money. And you can see this theme, let go of everything. And I, and I think those go together. I think if you write a book on money, then you'll go, oh, I need to write a book on heaven, you know, and, and vice versa. So and I think his stuff on money is awesome, too. His books, he's got three books on, on using money, stewardship, you know, it's great. Um, now, I mean, I have to give the normal qualification. The book on heaven, I don't, there are a few things I disagree with in there, but 95% of it I think is awesome. And the other stuff is not dangerous. I just have a little different interpretation, a few words and phrases. Okay, back to uh, your notes. It's speculative. Yeah. All right, so you've got this resurrected body. Uh, it'd be good to spend some time, and I like having discussions with people about what it would be like to have a resurrected body as we uh, roam the earth. You know, the trees, there'll be trees and awesome, beautiful landscapes to enjoy. Um, Resurrected bodies that don't get injured. And just, just spending some time, time talking about that with other believers, I think, is a great way to, to uh, abstain from fleshly lusts because it, because it reminds us that we are sojourners and exiles. All right, that's the second strategy for your spiritual battle. Fight as an unwelcome, intruding visitor in this world. Third strategy for your spiritual battle, fight for the salvation of men and the glory of God with beautiful behavior. Fight for the salvation of men and the glory of God with beautiful behavior. Yes, the beautiful behavior. Yeah, no. Well, it, it should flow from abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which is what Peter has in mind. So, let's read all, both verses again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain or be abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct 
among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's two great goals for all things that he puts in here, the salvation of men and the glory of God, right? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Part of being a sojourner and an exile is that we care about these things when all the world does not. These two issues are non-issues in our world. Peter says that your lusts wage war against the soul. Um, and so you've got to battle those things. Everything in verse 12 flows out of that. Um, think about your soul. If your lust wins, your soul perishes. That's what that means, right? Wages war against our soul. If your lusts win, your soul perishes. If your lusts wage war against your soul and you aren't able or aren't willing to fight back, then your lusts win and your soul dies. True believer, of course, is not going to die spiritually. But if we are true believers, then we will, we are able and we are willing to fight against our lusts and so we'll persevere. And Peter says this knowing that part of the means that God who saves us and sustains our faith, right, where he keeps us for that inheritance, he keeps us through faith. He said it earlier in chapter one. Part of the means that God uses to keep our faith, to sustain our faith, are the warnings. True believers hear the warnings and hold on to them. And that's the means. He always keeps us by means of his word. My sheep, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They persevere because they hold on to his word. Um, And so the unbeliever may be in church for a long time, may profess faith, but ultimately he hears warnings like this. Your soul hangs in the balance. He's got other things to think about. He goes back to his lusts. He starts thinking about what he wants. He'd sit in a, in a room like this, and he's thinking about what he's going to have for lunch. I just did that. <sighs> Maybe you're... <laughs> but it looks like there's conviction, and that's great. No, we need repentance. That's good. Okay, that won't get you to heaven, though. <laughs> the, oh my goodness. All right, this this class is gonna be a lot of fun. So, uh, so fight for the salvation of your soul. And now, that's what he just said. Now he's saying fight for the salvation of unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The unbelieving world is seeing you, uh, that they may see your good deeds. That word see is to observe, to watch carefully. So again, Peter cares about our behavior, Right? As we live the Christian life, we've got to think about our behavior. But as a priority, we think about abstaining from fleshly desires. We're concerned about the heart. I read earlier, chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Um, So ignorance of truth, ignorance of truth, ignorance of gospel truth feeds fleshly, deceptive lusts. 
If you're not filled with gospel truth, meditating on gospel truth every day, lust will have a heyday in your heart. You will believe all kinds of lies. And as you believe those lies and give in to those lusts, then you have conduct that is ugly. Words that are ugly. Actions that are ugly. And uh, so he's telling us to do the opposite here, right? To have honorable conduct. It's koloss. It's that Greek word. It means beautiful. If you look it up in the Greek lexicon, the first definition is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's attractive. It's mesmerizing. It's beautiful is the idea. Have beautiful behavior. Why is he saying that? Well, he's talked about the excellencies of God, of Christ that we're proclaiming, that we're uh, publishing for everybody to see. And even the idea of publishing, we're putting out there so people see it and they go, wow, beautiful, right? It's attractive. It's attractive, right? And we've been called out of darkness where we couldn't see into his marvelous light because we see who he is. We see his excellencies. We're mesmerized by who he is. And so, we, and so then, as we are uh, desiring him and, and we have, find pleasure in beholding his beauty, right? Then we're transformed into that same image, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, from glory to glory. And so that affects our behavior. And so our conduct then reflects his beauty. And so our conduct is beautiful. Um, and how do we get there? How do we get to that point? Um, we overcome the ignorance. And that way, battle against those desires. Fighting those desires with gospel truth, beholding his beauty. And so then our conduct is transformed. We can't, we can't switch up all that order. But that's what we're inclined to do. Let's just go right for the conduct and let's not care that much about the desires or what's going on in our hearts. Sometimes we care about the desires and we just say, I've got to stop those desires. Say no to the desires. And there's a temptation. Nope, not going to do it. Right? But we're weak. So we keep giving into it. We don't fight against those desires with the truth. We want to continue in our ignorance, still not meditating on the gospel any more than before. But now we're trying to say no to the desires and it's so frustrating. And the desires lead to sinful behavior. And other people see it, and they're like, you've got to stop acting like that. I know, I know, I'm trying to stop. But we're not going back to the gospel truth. So, you know, as you think about how to see change in your life, uh, how to grow and how to help other people, other believers grow, right? We're given this pattern in Colossians and in Ephesians, right? Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, uh, we're, we're putting off the old man. We're putting on the new man. So there's saying no to that behavior, saying yes to right behavior. Then in the middle, there's the renewing of your mind. It's not a step one, step two, step three, right? All these things happen at the same time, concurrently. But you don't want to leave out any of those. Yeah. But then in Ephesians 6, it goes on, you need to put on the whole armor of God to fight this battle we're in. Yeah. Not just one thing. We need the whole armor. We need all that God has given us right. to fight this battle. Yeah. It's not in our own strength. It's in Him. Yeah. So as we battle those desires, we're renewing our minds uh, with the truth and that the armor is all about the, the gospel truth, uh, having it transform our thinking so it empowers us to, with the desires and changing the behavior. 
Um, when we're putting off the old man and putting on the new, we're doing that at the level of our understanding, at the level of our desires, and at the level of our actions. And uh, leaving bits of that out causes the whole process to be derailed. And uh, so uh, the world is looking. They're observing. They're scrutinizing, Peter says. Let them, let them have something to see. And, and not only are they, they scrutinizing, uh, they have this inclination to slander Christians as evildoers. This was common in Peter's day. It's common in our day. Christians then were accused of being atheists and enemies of the state because they didn't worship Caesar or the Roman gods. They were accused of being haters of mankind because they didn't participate in, in all the religious festivals, the world religious, world's religious festivals. That's right. It is. We're accused of many things, being intolerant, accused of suppressing women, accused of being homophobes, people who want to legislate our religion. Peter says the primary way we had to refute such accusations, the primary way is by demonstrating the validity of the gospel through a life of beautiful behavior. We can't do that unless we are abstaining from our fleshly lusts. We can't do that unless we are savoring gospel truth. I'm savoring as in craving the word, turning over that gospel truth. I think of it like a mint, right? Keep flipping it over, sucking on it. That's what we do with gospel truth. Um, so we're not to withdraw from the world. That's how we're inclined to, especially when the accusations come. Feel like, oh, they're all just against us. Let's just stay inside and watch another movie. Now we refute such accusations with the life of godliness. He's going to talk about this more, chapter 2, verse 15. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we put them to silence with our good conduct. Chapter 3, verse 16, uh, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So you can think about this. Uh, used to be a long time ago when we, Christians would oppose abortion and people would stand up and say, well, you guys don't even care about the mothers. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a weakness, I think, in Christianity. It was kind of exposed, I think, a little bit. I'm not based on that judgment, based on just on what the unbelievers think, though. Mm -hmm. But uh, Christians have done a lot in the last 20, 30 years mm -hmm. with pregnancy resource centers, churches being involved, caring for mothers in so many different ways. And now you never hear that kind of an accusation anymore. I say never. I shouldn't say never. Hardly ever do you hear that kind of accusation. You don't care about the mothers. Um, I think the church has risen up and with beautiful behavior, with good works, they have silenced those particular accusations. And that's, I think, what we have to keep doing. That's what the church is called to do. Um, and so, and other times, we, with our good behavior, we put them to shame. That is, they feel ashamed for what they just accused us of. They see that they're wrong in it. So there's an evangelistic function of righteousness, and it can lead to unbelievers coming to faith in Christ. So they're silenced, they're put to shame, but 
Peter anticipates that there's going to be others that actually come to faith in Christ. That's, I think, what he has in mind when he refers to the day of visitation. Now, day of visitation has been taken a couple different ways. Maybe you read it, and the first thing that came to your mind is when God or when Christ, the second coming, visits the earth. What are you smiling for? Just listening. Just <laughs> it seemed like a big smile. You're like, yes, visiting the earth. So the day of visitation, yeah, you can picture the Lord visiting the earth, and I think at times this kind of terminology is used that way in Scripture. I don't think that's what's in mind here, though, for a couple reasons. A couple reasons. One is that there's no article, like a uh, a and the, right, in English anyway, no article before the word day. So I think if he is referring, if, Paul, if Peter had in mind the day of visitation as the, the second coming, the time when Christ comes back, I think he'd put an article there because he'd have a particular day in mind, and that's the way to indicate it with that, with that article. Uh, so I think he has something in some sense a little more generic than that, not, not the particular one that we'd all have in mind. So, um, but also in uh, yeah, Acts chapter 15, verse 14, Luke, writing the book of Acts, right, talks about Simeon. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. So there's an example of, at times, this terminology is used that way. God visits someone to bring them salvation, right? He draws near to them, opens their eyes to the truth, uh, changes their hearts so they receive the truth, and he visits them, and he does that to take them for a people, to take them as a people for his name. So I think that's what Peter has in mind. The mouths that slander are now transformed and giving praise to God for those same ones they slandered. I think that's along the lines of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And how does this happen? Not because uh, they see our good conduct and they just intuitively understand the gospel. <laughs> no, I think Peter's going to elaborate on that. Chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. They want a reason. They want an explanation for the hope, and they can see your hope. What is that hope? That's you enjoying God's undeserved favor, right? You're beloved. You know gospel truth, and so you're not going the way of the world. When they uh, insult you, you don't respond in kind. You don't, you're not following your desires like they do. And that's exactly what they'd expect. They know what it takes to rile someone up. They do it with each other, but then when they do it to you, you love them, and you're patient, and you show kindness to them. You want to come over, have a barbecue with my family? What? Who does this? Right? What, what is going on with you? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you about Christ. And Peter anticipates this happening. And this is, this is he puts to them as a strategy. It's exciting. I love it. They do need the gospel, though, to be saved, right? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. They're not going to learn about substitutionary atonement just from your good behavior, Right? They need gospel truth. But that's not to say that our conduct doesn't matter. And I think sometimes we as Christians say, who cares about the conduct and the beautiful behavior before the world? 
and we think, well, I'm not going to do it just to be seen by others. Well, don't do it just to be seen by others, but do it in part to be seen by others. Get out there in the world. Get out there in your neighborhood. Be known by them. Let them see your beautiful behavior that Christ has produced in you because you live in the marvelous light He's called you into. Live before them. Let, you, let them see your beautiful behavior. It's a reflection on Him. And then, and, then, and then let's pray that God would have them say, what makes you tick? How can you be like that? Um, and why would we want to do that? That's uh, all for the glory of God, right? Uh, Peter's telling us to make sure that all of our behavior brings glory to God directly, right? It reflects His glory, but it reflects His glory, and that's, that can be transformative for others. God uses that to draw others to Himself. And then they, there's another voice shouting the glory of God because they've been transformed by the gospel. The goal of all of our behavior is to draw attention to God, right? We could back it up. The goal then is the same for battling our lusts with the truth of the gospel. We, we battle our lusts, and then as we do that, we are keeping our conduct beautiful. And all that is ultimately for the glory of God. The goal of all our behavior, everything in life, is to draw attention to God. We live, you live, to get attention for God. That's the significance of your life. That's why I made you. That's why I saved you. So that you would behold His glory, enjoy Him, be transformed into His likeness, and proclaim His glory to others. That's it. Nothing else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you for choosing us, for, for knowing us. Thank you that we are your obedient children. You've given us this desire to be obedient. You've given us the power of your Holy Spirit, making us obedient. You've called us into war. Help us to make war against our sin, against our lusts, even today, even this week out of love for you, out of desire for your glory. Lord, people around us, they don't know the truth. They live in a darkness. And yes, they will slander us. And as we bear the reproach that you endured, and as we do that with you, sharing with you in the fellowship of your sufferings, may we be useful to you. May we have good conduct, beautiful behavior, so that others are, are drawn to you, that they are compelled to find out the truth about what you have done in our lives. And may we speak boldly and faithfully and clearly. May we speak the truth, gospel truth, that they might be saved, that there might be more people in our lives that bring glory to you as you visit them with your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.